Hi everyone. This is a special episode that you're listening to if you've subscribed to Coherence. In the following, I've mixed my own soundscape recordings with poetry and creative work from the keynote speakers at the conference our last two episodes reviewed, from the Green Words, Green Worlds, Environmental Literatures, and Politics in Canada conference. What I've tried to create is an alternative or artificial acoustic environment for the work presented at the conference. I've used recordings from rural and urban, outdoor and indoor spaces from specific moments in my life. These recordings represent information about the acoustic environment of southern Ontario in four seasons. But I also include recordings from Cape Breton and New York State. I chose not to create music for this episode partly because I felt it would influence the speaker's words too much. As listeners, we bring so many ideas about music to the table that we hear it as anything other than neutral. However, I have not abstained entirely, and I would also like to acknowledge that acoustic space, if a recording can be said to be objective, is never neutral. While we're still at the top of the show here, I'd like to acknowledge what a privilege it's been to work with this creative writing, and um, uh, my my humble thanks to the contributors. So without further ado, turn up the volume. Make space and let the night speak through you. What will the darkness say? Will it sigh the song of night cleaners, the lament of the wrongly imprisoned, the rage of the ragged, the dispossessed? How will the night take you back? Will you be the vessel for earth shatter, hydro poison, ancestral revenge? Perhaps steady weeds growing irrepressibly into the cracks, urban repurposing, straddling both the drugs that kill and the ones that heal. The globe moves around the sun, unstoppable, feeding pine trees and the petrostate alike, giving us the days and nights by which to stand with the trees, what the industry calls overburden, or to die more rapidly, more stupidly by peak oil. As rivers and oceans fill with carcinogenic wastes from the petroleum plastic supply chain, 
the political systems follow, stuffed full of sun corpse and tired old neo-colonial ego that refuses to stop pushing until it reaches the limits of the planet's patience. Who knows what alliances and monkey wrenches will be enough to stop the greed of the greasy machine? What I do know is that humble migrants who've traveled the ocean know its wisdom better than an arrogant elite that doesn't heed the world's necessary stories. Jail the stories and the storytellers, but they will keep speaking the night until empire expires with or without the multitudes alive. In this race, may we be ready to move fast, yet steady enough to encompass musicians and lake gatherings, forests and guerrilla gardens, fueled by a love more immense than the violence we've inherited. We need to live the world that is possible, even while we struggle against the rule of jails and jets, in grief and in celebration, in fear and in courage, in anger and in compassion. The night replenishes us so that we may continue to embody our living songs. Skin, Tuesday, 4th of April, 2006. I met my new dermatologist today. 
He came in swinging his canister of liquid nitrogen, as dermatologists do. He gave me the once-over, as dermatologists do. As a regular, I should be used to it by now, but I find it very disconcerting. Maybe it's just that he's my new dermatologist. My old one moved to Stony Creek. He's talking to me, but the whole time he's sweeping my skin with his eyes. He has special close-up vision. He can spot a freckle gone wrong in an instant. He knows what he's looking for, and he knows that I am someone who might give him cause to pause in his reading, to make him stop and reread me. It's not necessarily complexity he's finding. It's anomaly, but it's intimate. He's reading and rereading me, my skin. asked me the usual questions about where I grew up to determine my potential past sun damage, what I do for a living now, my current and potential sun damage, and what I like to do with, for a good time. Just kidding, he wanted to know if I liked outdoor sports like golf, don't know, and tennis, yes. He doesn't really want to get to know me, he just wants enough information to allow him to process and proceed. This is what dermatologists do. All the time he's talking and I'm talking back, he's reading me holding my hand and sweeping his eyes up my arm, across my shoulders, and down my other arm. He looks at my face, but not in the way that anybody else looks at my face. He's talking in an ordinary way, but he's mentally divided my face up into vertical sections, and he's scanning each section. His head and eyes move vertically. He stops at the bridge of my nose, where I had the surgery two years ago, and spends a little more time there. He touches the bridge of my nose, smooths the skin across, and he moves his head closer. He checks out my neck, a persistent problem, seems to be under control now. He spritzes my hand with the liquid nitrogen. I'd read it as a small wart, but he says not. I'm looking at it right now. It's red, and it looks like a supergiant wart. I know it will blister and peel off in a couple of days and smooth out, like my neck, pictured here from a few months ago. May 15th. By the broader, brighter trails, the fiddlehead shapes are gone, replaced by ferns in all their height and breadth. Then you find yourself in a deeper, darker part of the forest, down where sunlight has a hard time reaching, and you come across more clusters of ferns to be in the muck all those question marks with their compact and concentrated heads, this green village still on the edge of transformation. May 23rd. Three days on a small island without electricity or running water ropes birth and death extra tightly together. Gull chicks and our old purple skin soaked feathers. From their underground burrows, storm petrels staccato purr through their midnight mating. A dead minky whale's stench and its shining bristled baleen. 
On my knees, I cradle in my hand a seal, seawater-washed, icon-like jawbone with all its teeth intact. June the 1st. Today, when I took our cat to the vet, the cage's rusted door fell off. Rust eats a hole in the wheelbarrow. Rust invades the backyard shed and discolors a rake. Rust weakens the spikes in the backboard of the abandoned basketball net. The shed's door latch, the propane tank, the croquet wickets rusted. Once I found a lost watch in a park. In this ocean-eyed realm of oxides, rust was gnawing on the hands of time. June 10th. Driving to Hemlock Ravine, I listened to Johnny Cash in his dying months, singing in Hendersonville, Tennessee, his voice scraped like an old tool. There ain't no grave gonna get my body down. Then I'm in the chilly woods where a crow with lusterless troubled feathers lands on a branch above me. His beak moves, nothing but silence comes out. When I hear that trumpet sound, I'm going to rise right out of the ground. June 18th. Oil, oil, oil. Slicked brown pelican. Oil, oil, oil. Flightless horned grebe. Oil, oil, oil. Crow colored vesper sparrow. Oil, oil, oil. Golden plover, no longer gold. Oil, oil, oil. Magnificent frigate bird in need of a name change. Oil, oil, oil. The water, like a witch's oils, with my crossbow I shot the black-legged stilt, hooded merganser. Oil, 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 least sandpipers, even less. Oil, 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 fish crow, now with the fishes. Water, water.
July 2nd. Our two trunk silver birch is far shorter than the old sycamore and beech keeping the sunlight from it. Year after year, a third of its leaves are brown and whole riddled, yet we can't bear to saw it down, and we value the shade that sickens it. This birch is an overprotected child, the friendless son touching the hearts of guests who recognize in themselves his air of quiet, the shadows of his fears, and his explicit ribs. July 29th, and I thank my son for this. It's virtually his. Walking where I walked so often when I was a child, my son asks, are there moose in here? What's the difference between a lake and a pond? Do those lilies grow in the ocean too? If I threw a rock in, would the tadpoles swim? Are caribou deer? When will we get back in the car? Why are cheaters faster than lions? What are you taking a picture of? Don't you hate it when you reach up and find a dead bug caught in your hair? August 24th. On volcanic offshore rocks, a dozen cormorants take turns spreading their wings widely like dark, fine mesh screens to dry in the light. Turning from the basalt-colored birds, we find on the footpath basalt-colored bear shit laced with blueberries. Outside Lewisburg, we hike along one of the Earth's countless unacknowledged borderlands between the realms of the snake-necked seabirds and the ursine rambler. October 15th. The butterflies have withdrawn from flight, I wrote not long ago, but too early. Since then, clouded sulfurs have flicked past in pale yellow, and a morning cloak relaxed its purple-brown wings on a hole-ridden bunchberry leaf. The only almanac worth composing includes wrong dates. If I ever had a crystal ball, by now it would be broken and thrown into a stream swift water rushing over the pieces of its certainties. We stick to our guns, rifling through sprained inventories of trigger fingers. We squeeze into camouflage gloves to mix messages during monsoon headlamps of pugilistic scrutiny. The adhesives make us do it, assuming one thing in the terms of another as we salamander the sucrose backwash of malathion fog or panty-waste the politics and particle board. The adhesives work by brokering exchange between solvent and solution, by realigning rainfall and hastily beaten retreats stomped answering machines of foreshortened demonstration. The adhesives constitute the failure of one of us to completely eat another. Compromise is the undigested organelle, the prototypes of fortune cookies and distended suburban food courts. 
teeth and hooks are used by adhesives to attach to clothing and fur. In this way, reproduction gains traction in the temperate zones, a persistent underbrush adherence to pointillist peristalsis while the polarities of swank declinate into static. The adhesives refuse out-and-out out denial only to court tight lips whose laminate embouchure is a herald of thermoset trombones. The adhesives operate in the key of F, like car horns, dial tones, and Bronx cheers, like prop planes bent around convective updrafts and drop-tuned ospreys. The goal of adhesives is the gradual learning to produce ever more with ever less. A worldly in language, they loom into silent recognition on the roadside and street signs. High-speed needs for integrating circuits have induced the invention of a wide variety of, of adhesives. The procuring of food and shelter are exogenous examples. So are the semiotic modalities of weeds. The signs of the zodiac were once adhesives. The treble clef in music still is. It now appears that in some increasingly important areas we need an adjunct to our sophisticated speech and need to work our way back to the simple universality of an understandable, albeit limited, adhesive. Skyscrapers, bridges, and other forms of attachment parenting provide possible counterparts. Epoxies have appeared like beards on guardrails promising unevenly weighted priorities. stick is the obvious ideogram. But it is more likely to be taken out of context as the principal ingredient in showmanship and shampoo, the loud comb-over of cool tortoiseshell, the reiterated post-it note protrusion. To hear us speak, you would think adhesives were campgrounds parading desalinated tan lines and warm rye whiskey and meniscus-covered novelty cups to the assembled white pine pitch. You would think we put two and two together for the pleasure of a profligate math stuck on prime ribbons and divided loyalties. Misrecognition is the abacus of adhesives. Miscegenation is its quantum. Watch how the water behaves. See how the rain clumps into integers of wet fur. All of us have been taken for bitumen. Wet bulb temperatures climb with the election of carbohydrate prime ministers. The humidity, like stacked chairs in the upper decks of iron and economic portfolios, is too preoccupied with itself to stick to anything else. More and more tight pants are bird calls of distressed leather cruising the sticky streets for humectant cummerbunds and mystified sugar. Your jam sandwich is a glue gun, a polysaccharide stick-up in a long chain of heists that began with an innocent hankering for ambrosia salad and decantered hooves. The adhesives are cross-linked appetites, running deliveries from pickup truck resins to polyamine asthmatics who spread cures for evaporating Great Lakes and indiscriminate drinking. We beat each other with protein and groundwater. The citizens of Parkersburg, West Virginia, have been breathing stain-repellent pants for years. The French engineer who took his wife's suggestion that he try his coatings for fishing tackle on her cooking pots has been editing the flesh of ring seals ever since. Even in a boom year, there is washing to be done. Surfactants split the swimming pool into garden-variety crudes. Surface tension stumped for incendiary candidates in slowly-ripped versions of the coast. Future generations will likely consider detergents to have been shockingly feeble instruments of thought. Erogenous solutions have always been attractive to midriff solvents. Diffusing into each other, we are adhesives, hemoglobins bound to heart attacks and heliotropes, wanting to cleave to be clean so badly we bead.
down the hill. Okay. I was asked to read something creative that I've written. So this is, um, this is a little piece um, that's adapted from a traditional Ojibwe narrative. And I guess it's an attempt to bring it all back inside of me. It's called Water Lily Woman. In this story, she left her home among the star people and sought the company of earth and earthly beings. At night, the people looked to a sky shimmering with hope and desire, and they saw one star brighter than all the others. He too looked up, a young man still imagining who he might be, and at that moment he felt a touch lighter than a feather, a touch that made him shudder and look over his shoulder to the hand he imagined was there. Was this destiny? Absolution of a kind or purely a gift in a time before time. Night after night, the people gazed upon the stars and saw that one grew brighter as it grew closer. I think of this story sometimes when it is late and I am in a taxi speeding home from the airport or at a train station as I do often these days, my head ballooning with the rise as I gaze out the window to the darkness gliding along the roadside. Go if you must, I hear my wife, my lover say, but return as I do, always in a word, a call, my presence opening the door between us and holding her in the dream of life. She was lonely in the sky, the star woman in the labyrinth of distance, a birthmark upon her luminous skin as she was bound to shed. And so she conjured a different life and set her sights on the brave young man who could no longer sleep at night, having felt her heartache brush his skin and bruise his heart. As the star woman moved closer and the night grew brighter, the people saw that the star took the shape of a bird, her full wings outstretched descending from the night sky, her passion penetrating the dream world of the young man. And so he sank into a fitful sleep where he sweated and moaned, sinking deeper and deeper into the place of their joining. I think of this too after the taxi ride when we were sitting in the darkened yard under the spreading vines, the stars all but extinguished by the city. 
And I tell her of flying and landing in a country where I forget how to speak, forget the stories that make me who I am, and she looks at me like she doesn't understand. I think of the star woman's language, how she might have spoken to him, the grace of her touch, his touch, as they dreamed themselves together, and she unfolded herself for him like the perfect flower she would become. I want to stay as close as I am to you now, she whispered, these words poised on the tip of her tongue as she pulled him towards her to fulfill her exquisite longing. I want always to be at your side and those of your people, for I love you all in your lands of flowers and meadows, rivers and mountains. Yes, he answered, please stay and always be at my side. Make the night sweet with your starry lips. What a surprise for the young brave when he awoke to find his star woman had turned herself into a water lily. But perhaps he should have expected it. The young brave had told his people the star woman would live among them. They had rejoiced and brought her gifts of medicines and sweet herbs. The next night she had told her lover to ask the eldest, the wisest of the wise, where she should live and what form she should take while living amongst them. Let the maiden herself decide where she will be happiest, answered the elders. And the star woman saw that the people themselves were happiest living near the water, playing in it or traveling over it in their sleek canoes. And so in the pre-dawn, hovering at the water's edge, she turned herself into a lily. This way, she reasoned, she would always be at her lover's side and those of her people. Had this been enough for him? I wonder as I watch my own lover go inside the house as I turn to look up to the pale stars. She had fallen in love not solely with him, but with his people and the land. Her desire had been much larger than he ever could imagine, from the frigid sky to the heat of his body to the heat of the sun-warmed land. Not only had she opened herself like a flower before him, she had become the object of love, the flower itself, a love supreme. Did he still crave her touch, the stroke of her damp skin, the beating of her heart as they lay exhausted side by side? Or was swimming or paddling among a bed of lilies as far as the eye could see enough for him to realize the gift that she had given them all? There is no answer to such an old story, a story on the cusp of memory, coming from the stars themselves, springing from the water, just as there is no one way to tell it. A footstep, and I look back to the house to see her beckoning me inside, mouthing that it is bedtime where we two will swim in each other's arms. Miigwetch.
presented. This episode was made by Andrew Mark, Rita Wong, Anne Milne, Brian Bartlett, Adam Dickinson, and Armand Garnet Rufo. All of the outstanding poetry you just heard was collected at a conference called Green Words, Green Worlds, Environmental Literatures and Politics in Canada, which took place in October of 2011. Special thanks to the conference organizers, Kate Sandilands and Ella Soper, for their support and for letting us bring our mics to the conference. The sound and music in this episode was recorded and arranged by Andrew Mark. For more information about this and all of our other episodes, please visit our webpage at www.niche-canada.org backslash coherence, and coherence is spelled C-O-H-E-A-R-E-N-C-E. Remember to like us on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Coherence is produced with support from the Network in Canadian History and Environment and the Faculty of Environmental Studies at York University. Stay tuned to your Coherence iTunes subscription because our food episode is almost ready. Featuring Michelle Zabo, our very first guest producer, this episode will explore social inequality in the food system. We're putting the finishing touches on it right now, so it'll be out sometime in July of 2012.